I'm Steve Lee. It's brilliant to have this opportunity to speak to you today. We are in Acts 17. This is what it says in verse 13. When some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. The church is primarily called to make disciples, not to make converts. A convert is somebody who has taken a decision, whereas a disciple is someone who has made a life-changing commitment. In wrestling with this tremendous challenge, we need a deep connection with God and his word, but we also need a deep connection with our culture and with the type of culture that we find ourselves in and speaking into at any given time. Karl Barth, the uh, Swiss Reformed theologian, famously said this, preach the gospel with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, but always interpret the newspaper from the Bible. Good advice. So we're looking at Paul and we're looking at his journey which took him to Athens uh, in Acts 17. Paul goes to the city or probably more accurately he escapes to the city having run into some serious trouble further north, a lot of opposition to the gospel and he quickly tunes into the nature of this place, Athens, this great city and he discovers that it is an absolute hotbed of religion, of mysticism, of art, of philosophy. It's quite a cultural epicenter and into that cultural epicenter, into that experimental hotbed, Paul lands and we're going to discover what his reaction to it is, what his response to it is and how his calling as an evangelist, as an apostle, as a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how that is outworked in a place like Athens. By now, this former uh, radicalized thug has been converted and he has become a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's deeply intelligent, he's well-educated, and he is fabulously gifted at taking the timeless message of the gospel and tailoring it to a particular cultural setting. And we're going to find out how he does that in Athens. But far from arriving in this city uh, for a two-week poolside holiday on the Aegean coast, possibly with a bit of island hopping taken in during week two, far from that, Paul arrives and he has a response and a reaction to the environment that he finds himself, finds himself in. Um, he encounters all of this pluralism, all of these messages, these altars, these shrines to all kinds of different types of God. And his reaction to it is not to run for cover for fear that he would be contaminated by the devil and his works. His reaction is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ every day 
it says in Acts 17, in the square, in the uh, open air areas that are in Athens. Too many Christians in too many churches these days seem to have this idea that the basic plan is to keep the devil out of the church to prevent the devil accessing what we are doing as church but you see that was not Paul's way it actually it wasn't Jesus way either our plan must not be to barricade the walls to stop the world getting into our church but it should be to take the walls off the church and allow the church to get back into the world where it was always meant to be where it was always meant to operate we've got to allow the gospel to be let loose out of our lives out of our structures and our programs possibly in the days that we are living in now it's easier to do that than at any time in living memory we've got to allow this gospel to live once again in the culture in the world that we are in. I feel like the watchword of our society is tolerance and unfortunately what that has done has created heightened anxiety and political correctness within the church. It was Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, who said this, tolerance is the virtue of the man who believes nothing. I don't believe that we have to resist being forthright with the gospel. I think we can do that, but we can do it in a way that deeply and profoundly connects with people's aching longing for an eternal hope and for eternal purpose. I do not believe that the appetite within society right now is some sort of milky, watered-down gospel. I think people are looking for radical answers to the human struggle and we as the church of Jesus Christ we have the answer and the answer is to be found in the Bible and in relationship with the God of the Bible. We have got to be true to this, we've got to be radical in our commitment and in our outworking of our high calling as the people of God to allow the gospel to be positioned, probably repositioned in our society, in our culture. So let's go right back into this story as Paul begins to address the Athenian leaders. Um, he's in a little bit of problem here as well. Uh, so what is the impact of Paul's daily gospel declaration in the city square well it's interesting I would say that's my reaction to it looking at these scriptures so let's pick up the story in Acts 17 and this time in verse 18 what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it is all about. Very interesting resonance with 
what took place around Peter and John. For those of you who know the Bible, way back in Acts 4, so quite a way back in the book of Acts. And incidentally, the Acts of the Apostles was only written because the Apostles acted. Let's not forget that. Peter and John did it, now Paul's doing it. But back in Jerusalem, in Acts 4, Peter and John have laid their hands on a crippled guy at one of the gates going into Jerusalem and have landed in a heap of trouble as a result. They've been dragged before the religious council and being asked similar questions, albeit with a lot more aggression at this stage than what Paul is being faced with. But the situation is quite interesting. Back into the the scripture, we're now at Acts 17 and verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, very interesting words. Uh, They do have a, a, a strong resonance, as I say, with Acts 4. Take a look at it. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For I, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul is connecting in, he's tuning in to the cultural wavelength of the people who are asking him these questions. And he he begins by almost validating the people and their spirituality. He tells them that he's had a good look around their city and he clearly has. The opening uh, uh, verses in chapter 17 of Acts would tell us that. He's looking around, he's tuning in he's soaking in the atmosphere and I think what he's probably doing is working out how he's going to land the gospel into this culturally defined environment which is different from Jerusalem it's different from the other parts of uh, the area around Greece that he's come from or been airlifted out of because of problems and it's definitely different from our culture today for the church to be successful In making disciples, I want to encourage you with this. We have got to be both connected and present in our culture. If we're going to learn from our culture, we've got to be connected with it. We can't just be observers of it. We can't be students of it. We can't be judges of it. We've got to be immersed in it. Jesus did that. Paul did that. We are not called to live an alternative existence in a parallel universe we've got to be present we've got to be authentic and we've got to be connected I think that's the reason why Paul chose his language very well he wasn't inflammatory in the way that he spoke he validated them he made them understand that he had observed their city he wasn't just arriving on some preaching tour to deliver his pre-planned set of gospel preaches he had culturally sensitized himself to the environment that he was in among the Athenian people Jesus himself did this he had a very strong connected approach to 
the culture and to the environment. But then he spoke very powerfully into the culture in a way that got people's attention and captivated their hearts. He was uncompromising, as we must be, with the challenge of the gospel, but he wasn't odd, weird, or strange. He was someone who understood who he was talking to. John 4, the amazing, wonderful story of the woman at the well that some of you will be very familiar with. Jesus, in this context, crosses the, the chicken line of a cultural turf war in order to reach a woman who had been discarded by her village, by her community, had been expelled by her society and was at the well on her own. That would not have been the tradition. Normally, the women would have gone together, uh, not at midday, where this woman was meeting Jesus in this so-called chance encounter. But she's there. She's alone. She's at the wrong time of the day, probably because of her lifestyle, of her reputation. Jesus walks a long way across a borderland that he shouldn't have been at with, with his background to reach this woman. You see, he's tuning in to the culture, to the moment, to the time, to the place in order to reach and actually to rescue that woman in John 4. Then there's a story in Luke 5 of the healing of the paralyzed man. Again, you remember the story where Jesus is in a house in a place called Capernaum. He looks up and four fellas from down the road have kicked the roof in in order to lower their mate on a bed by the corners into the middle of this not church gathering, but into this audience, this congregation, if you like, that Jesus has gathered. He's sick, he's disabled. And Jesus uses that particular moment to attack the bigotry of the day that equated sickness and suffering, and in his case, paralysis, somehow with God's wrath. Jesus went after that particular issue and he tuned into the culture as he did that. And then one of my famous stories in the Bible, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who uh, those of you who heard me speak on the subject will know that he is more of a tax creator than a tax collector. He is a rip-off merchant of mammoth proportions. And he is the guy that Jesus selects. He picks this one person with the, the suspect background in order to show him grace and acceptance. Maybe the person who was most lacking in those two things because of the type of choices that he made. But Jesus connected in. He put his finger on the cultural pulse and he worked out what was going on. Jesus was described as a friend of sinners. Often that is used in quite a religious context. But what that means to me is that Jesus was, again, as I've said, he was connected. But I think it also means that people really felt that they knew him, that they were a part of his scene and that he regarded them as one with him, even though his words cut to the heart and left people in absolutely no doubt as to what they needed to do. They needed to die to their old life and to be reborn in a new life in order to become his followers. But as I said a few moments ago, Jesus, Jesus was not a weirdo 
he wasn't some oddball. He wasn't some crank that caused people to go, I, yeah, he's saying something new, but he's not someone that I really want to be around. The opposite was true. Why on earth would we have found thousands of people walking up a mountain to follow him if he was some religious oddball? I don't think that stacks up. I think he was uncompromising. He cut to the heart. He shook it all up, but he did it in a way that was winsome. People wanted to be around him. And I think it's the same today. I don't think people are afraid of the challenge of the gospel. I don't think very often people are rejecting the gospel. What they are rejecting is the cultural packaging that it so often arrives in. And that, I think, is what we have got to change. Paul now zeroes in, we're back in Athens, okay? Paul now zeroes in on this inscription that he has seen on one of the altars to the unknown God. And if you look at this passage carefully, what I think he's doing is that he's using this as his hook in order to reach this audience, as I said, that is culturally defined, He's reaching the audience with this particular illustration of what he has picked up in his little stroll around the city. And he's using it now to reach and win an audience with the gospel. Then we read the account of his brilliant uh, anointed presentation of the nature of the eternal God. We're not going to read it all today, but I encourage you to get into the passage in Acts 17, he uses it to, to portray the nature of the eternal God. And in doing that, what he is doing is that he is hitting the Athenian cultural bullseye by using that analogy and these types of, of, of illustration within this message to reach the people. The reaction to this blistering defence of the gospel is not what you might think. Knowing Paul's reputation, knowing how good he was at what he did, the reaction is mixed, actually. Uh, even though I read that and I think that's a, that's a hot talk, that's a great presentation. He's really landed that one. He's nailed it. He's chosen a great illustration. He's done his homework. He understands the culture. Really, that should have produced a great response. Well, it was a mixed response uh, if you you look at it. Uh, and it's it's actually always going to be that way. I, I think it's the journey of an evangelist. Uh, if I can put it like that, I think people have got free will. Uh, the Bible says they've also been blinded. So we're not dealing with an we're not dealing with a, a you know an even playing field in some ways. I think we have the authority of Christ, but the devil has, is at work in our world. So people's eyes have been blinded. People are resistant to hearing truth. So uh, let's read it. Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Acts seventeen thirty two to thirty four. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Risky, I would have thought with Paul's background. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. <laughs> Not now. <clears throat> we want to hear it later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers or followers or 
disciples. It's been a great honour for me to see many, many come to Christ over the years, thousands actually come to Christ and and many have become disciples of Jesus Christ. But I, I would not be being honest or truthful if I said that many have said no, many have resisted, many have even opposed me uh, bodily on one or two occasions. And it, it is the journey, as I said, it is the journey of an evangelist. I'm very comfortable with that. Um, I'm not offended by that. I'm disappointed by it because I want the maximum amount of people as possible to come into the family of God by believing who they truly are in God and finding a way to embrace this new life and to seek forgiveness of God. I want that. I don't want any person who hears the gospel to say no, but I don't take it personally because I know it's not me that they're rejecting. And it's definitely true with Paul as well. So we've got to be ready for that. We've got to recognise when people reject the gospel, they're not rejecting us necessarily, uh, but it is their free choice in the end. Billy Graham used to say that I am simply the delivery boy. Uh, I deliver the message. On one occasion, he said, I'm like a newsreader and I read the news. I don't write the news. I don't have the liberty to change the news, but I do deliver the news. As God's church, we have an immeasurable responsibility to God's world. Let me say that again. As God's church, we have an immeasurable responsibility to God's world, a high calling to articulate the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that people can understand it. Here's Paul again, this time in Rome, as he is speaking into a Roman culture, different to an Athenian culture. Uh, but this is what he said. This is Romans 10 and verse 14 and 15. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone else tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them unless they are being sent that is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. The eternal gospel of Jesus Christ is born in the heart of an eternal God, but the communication of it must adapt with the time and the culture. One of my heroes, Amy Semple McPherson, said this, we must be both faithful to the word and faithful to the moment. We have to face this challenge, my friends, that some of what we do in church is not in the Bible. It's just taste. We mustn't make absolute truth out of the things that we just like to do. Inherited traditions, a lot of it. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It certainly doesn't mean that it's evil, but it doesn't mean that it's truth either. We need to be careful with our preferences it's okay to have preferences as long as we don't build cultural walls inside the church and its structures and its programs that people cannot penetrate they cannot get over or round church must be accessible all the time in every way to those who are on the outside john wesley said the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members let's not ever forget that. 
Chesterton again said this, God never intended the church to be a refrigerator to preserve perishable self-sufficiency. He intended it to be an incubator to hatch new Christians. The church is most successful, I believe, when it has a healthy balance of redemption and deliverance in the way that it handles our culture. The world is not evil. The world is wonderful, but it is being molested by the demonic. Let's embrace our culture as we navigate our way through the stuff that crosses the line in terms of biblical absolutes. Let me explain that again. Let's embrace the culture only until it crosses the boundaries where we cannot compromise. And those things are very clear from scripture and they are for another day. But I want to encourage us, if we are going to see the devastated generations arise, we must embrace change as a blessing and not a curse. And we have got to understand that we are not of the world, but we are most certainly in it. We like to say we're not of the world as if that is some sort of license to live a separatist lifestyle. But we are in the world and we are called to be in the world for as many years as we have on this earth. We are called to be fully in the world, even though we understand that we are en route to a final destination, a more radical expression of home. Our lives are eternal but our life on this earth, we are called to be a part of the world. Let's be good news to the unreached and often unreachable people groups that are on our doorstep who will live their lives very differently to us, who will make very different choices. And let's make disciples for Jesus Christ. Amen.